Thanks. Sorry, my amen was loud because I turned the microphone on too soon. But there we go. Morning, everyone. Should I say afternoon? Uh, I hope you guys are doing well. Good to be with the church family this morning. Uh, welcome if you're online. Why don't we just, everyone, just turn around real quick and wave at the camera at the back. Just say hello to our friends online. Hello, everyone. Great to have you with us. Uh, if you're watching, um, every week you have different people hooking into our online kind of stream, either those who maybe are sick and are at home, or perhaps those that are overseas or away for work. So welcome, good to have you with us. And uh, we are starting a brand new teaching series this morning called The Treasure Principle. Uh, yes. And so those stories of just financial provision were just so, such a brilliant introduction uh, to where we're going to be going over the next few weeks together because we obviously are all living in a season of increasing kind of anxiety about money, economic uncertainty, pressure, challenge. Um, if you're living off your news feeds, you know, it, it is pumping all of the challenges in your direction and probably all of us feel that in different ways. And so looking at what the Bible actually has to say about how we handle our money, how we trust God for provision, how we live uh, biblically when it comes to our finances is right now more important than perhaps ever before because of the set of issues we're facing. So we're going to turn to the Bible today and we are going to look at a biblical perspective on wealth and prosperity. You're welcome. That's what we're doing. I'm going to try and do it in 25 minutes. Um, there's, there's probably a part two and a part three at some point, but today's part one. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to read together. And uh, this is a passage of scripture written by a guy called the Apostle Paul. Uh, if you're here and perhaps you're a new believer, or maybe you're here for the first time, uh, Paul was one of the figures who wrote a lot of what we now have as the New Testament. He was uh, someone who started lots of new churches. He wrote lots of books of the Bible. He was an incredible pioneer in the early Christian faith. And in this passage, he is writing to some of his buddies in a city called Corinth. And it's a church that he helped start plant. Um, and he is writing to them, particularly to talk to them about giving and about money. And so we're going to dive in at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Start the timer. Off we go. All right. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the churches of Macedonia. In the terrible ordeal they suffered, their abundant joy and deep poverty overflowed into rich generosity. For I testify that they gave according to their ability and even beyond it. Of their own accord, they earnestly pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And not only did they do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us because it was the will of God. So we urged Titus to help complete your act of grace just as he had started it. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not making a demand, but I am testing the sincerity of your love in comparison to the earnestness of others. Isn't that interesting? We often talk about not comparing ourselves with others. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing with the Corinthians. And then here's our key verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty 
you might become rich. Let's just park the bus there. Profound, profound verse. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to ask two questions of this particular verse and this passage. Question number one. Jesus experienced both riches and poverty, but did he at any point cease to be wealthy? Question number one. Question number two. Jesus became poor that we might become rich. Does this mean that all Christians should expect to be millionaires, in the words of Del Boy? Should that be the Christian expectation from this verse? So that's where we're gonna go, and let's dive straight in. Did Jesus at any point cease to be wealthy? Now, 2 Corinthians 8 verse nine is typically a passage that most preachers like myself apply spiritually. And of course, there's, there's good reason to do so. Like there is so many profound spiritual truths in Paul's statement for us. And the truth is this, Jesus stepped out of heaven and entered the poverty of the earth that through his sacrifice, we might be forgiven and saved. That's the gospel. That's the spiritual application of this verse. Scripture says all of us were lost in our transgressions and sins and yet through Christ, now we're alive in God. That's the gospel. It's the good news that actually should never get old. Guess what? This is the message that you are going to be singing about for all of eternity. The, the news doesn't get any better than this, folks. This is, the, this is the headline news. You have been saved by a God who loves you, and he loved you enough he gave his only son. Can we just, like, just take a moment just to think about the wonder of that? You have been saved by a God who loves you and came for you. Jesus stepped into our poverty, that through his poverty, we might become spiritually rich. And as someone once said, the son of God became the son of man, that the sons of men might become the sons of God. This is called the divine exchange. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what we receive, grace. Grace. But I want you to notice the context in which these verses are actually written. What is Paul actually talking about when he mentions this in verse nine? Money. That's what he's talking about. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake you became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. Yes, there's a spiritual application, but what Paul is actually talking about is money. He's talking about giving. In this particular passage, this is the context. And what Paul is really wanting to drive home to the Corinthians in this passage is this. The heart of the gospel message is a God who is super abundantly generous. That is the heart of the gospel. Is a God who is graciously generous to people who don't deserve it. That is the gospel. And Paul is saying, because of this heartbeat of the gospel it affects all of the rest of our lives including our money because we've come into contact with a God who came for us when we had nothing and he's raised us up with Christ super generously and that means it changes our attitude towards money possessions and eternity you've gone quiet on me but it's okay I'm going to keep encouraging myself Paul is saying, listen, this is, this, is, this is the issue. It's generosity, radical generosity. Because this is what God is like. God is radically generous. We just heard two stories there of how God is radically generous. 
And that's what he's like. And this is good news if you live in Bedford because this last year, Bedford was found to be the second most generous town in all of England. I know. Pat yourself on the back. Thank you, Lord. Now, the year before, we were number one, so I wasn't going to mention that, but um, we've got work to do, guys. We've got work to do for next year. But um, in Just Giving's roundup of 2022, uh, Bedford has ranked just below Bristol, but above Luton. Hey. Joke, if you're from Luton, we love you, but we're glad we came above you in the league table. Um, Bedford was more generous than London, more generous than Nottingham, more generous than York. A uh, lady who runs Bedford Food Bank, she said this, Bedford Food Bank has experienced a 69% increase in demand for our services this year, but not once have our shelves been empty of any food to give out. The generosity of the town of Bedford overwhelms me continuously how people just keep giving to others in this town. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, another lady who runs a charity for young people, she said, it's incredible that Bedford has been recognized as one of the highest areas of giving, knowing that we are a relatively small town compared to others. This is a proud moment for our community. It is a proud moment for our community. Like, if I want to be known for one thing, I'd love to be known as being super abundantly generous. That is so cool. And that includes many of you in this room. Many of you are super abundantly generous people. Um, just at the start of this year, Carol, my wife and I, what we like to do at the start of the year is just kind of review the year that's gone before and just take time to give thanks for the things that God's done in our life. And one of the things that we were reflecting on this last year for us is just the incredible generosity of both God and people towards us. And we were remembering probably five or six very specific stories this last year where people have given to us generously and surprisingly. Um, Carol, my wife, she'd had some fairly major health challenges the last four or five years. And in September, she uh, needed to get a fresh set of blood tests from overseas. It was going to cost one and a half thousand pounds to get them done, which we didn't have. And so we just prayed. Well, like, Jesus, we'd love to get these blood tests done. Please, would you provide? Within a week, a friend who'd set aside some money to give to someone prayed, and God said, I want you to give that money to Phil and Carol Wilfie. And so she gave it to us, and it completely covered our costs. I could repeat that story again and again and again and again, as people have been super abundantly generous towards us. And there's something about generosity that is the heartbeat of the gospel. When you're generous towards other people, whether it's with, with your money or your time or your gifts or your talents or your friendship or your, your love, there's something about that act of giving that reflects something about God. You give people a window on the gospel when you choose to live super abundantly generous. And Paul says, the Macedonian Christians, they didn't have two beans to rub together and yet they pleaded to be involved in being able to give. He said, out of their extreme poverty welled up rich generosity. And this reveals to us a very, very important truth, and it's this. Biblical wealth has nothing to do with money, but has everything to do with generosity. So did Jesus at any point cease to be wealthy, even though he experienced both riches and poverty? And the answer is no. He was the most wealthy man that ever walked planet Earth. And it wasn't because of the size of his bank balance or the kind of camel that he rode into Jerusalem on. It was because of the nature of his internal world. He was a man super abundantly generous, even to the point where he gave his life on a cross. That's Jesus that's our God, and it's the heartbeat of the gospel. 
generosity. Wealthy people are generous people. I love the story of one day a few years ago when one of our car parking stewards out there noticed a man walking past our driveway here and didn't have any shoes on. What was his first impulse? What size shoes do you take? You can have my shoes. Took his shoes off, gave them to the man. That's generosity right there. That's the gospel. This week, a friend of mine, she comes around and cleans sometimes in our house. I came back um, after she'd left the house and she'd left on the table a fresh lemon meringue pie sent from Jesus, especially for me. That's the heartbeat of the gospel. That lemon meringue pie said something to me about the nature of God. You see, wealth has nothing to do with pounds or pence or what car you drive or what your salary is or what your education is or what your background is. Wealth has to do with the size of your heart, what's on the inside. I love what Chris Valentin says. He says this. He said, although Jesus left heaven, heaven never left Jesus because kingdom prosperity always begins from the inside out. You can put Jesus in a manger, but you can't put a manger in Jesus. You see, your external world will always be determined by the nature and size of your internal world. The reality that you're most convinced of on the inside will affect the reality on the outside. And if you understand, I have been saved by a God of grace. I was nowhere and yet he's given me everything. I am now a son or a daughter of God. I've been raised with Christ and seated in heavenly places. He has given me a new name, a brand new start, a forgiven heart. He's poured mercy on my life. If that's the nature of your internal world... It's going to transform your external world. And that has nothing to do with how materially rich you are. It has everything to do with the one that you worship and the one who saved you. And that's the heartbeat of the gospel. John puts it this way in his third epistle. He says, Beloved, I pray in all respects that you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. What's he saying? He's saying your external world is determined by your internal world. I have a soul that now prospers. That means that I can live a life of super abundant generosity. Even if I might be materially poor, I can still live abundantly generous because of the one that I worship. Again, Chris Vallotton, he really helpfully defines uh, what wealth looks like in biblical terms, five things. He says, number one, wealth is the ability, the resources, the strength and the wisdom to create positive outcomes in the midst of lack, poverty and or emptiness. Let's go to the next slide. There's some really awesome slides that you're not getting, that I want you to get. The slides are coming your direction any minute now. I can see them at the back now. So there we go. Thank you, guys. Secondly, wealth is light in the darkness, healing in sickness, prosperity in poverty, wholeness in brokenness, favor in obscurity, love for the unlovely, beauty for ashes, and victors among victims. Thirdly, wealth is a can-do attitude, a more-than-enough mindset, and a nothing-is-impossible belief system. Number four, wealth is radical generosity, extraordinary compassion, sacrificial giving, and profound humility. And number five, wealth is always thankful and never jealous it does not brag and it celebrates others and looks to the future so how wealthy are you feeling this morning and that is not a question about how much money you have how wealthy are you feeling this morning uh, I've told this story many times but it so impacted me of a friend who was a pastor for many years 
a beautiful family, man I really, really respect. And he went into the financial industry for the first time, I had to retrain and was interviewed with a company and they're asking, you know, why should we give you this job? And this is what he said to them. He said, well, I've spent the last 20 years in the wealth management industry, but it's only in the last six months that I've actually thought about money. Just think about that. He said, I've spent the last 20 years in the wealth management industry, but I've only really recently started to think about money. Wealth is about generosity and reflecting the generosity of Jesus to other people. So, that answers our first question. Second question, strap on your seatbelts, here we go. Jesus became poor that we might become rich. Does this mean that we should all be millionaires or millionaires? Kind of substitute the two L's for a W and you sound a little bit like Del Boy. Okay, just, just try that, just for a moment. Millionaires, millionaires, very good. All right. So if Jesus was rich and through his poverty we become rich, what are the riches that Jesus experienced? And should our expectation as Christians be that we are prosperous, healthy, wealthy people that wear a lot of bling and show our spirituality by the amount of possessions and money we have? Should that be our expectation? People are answering the question for me. Should that be your expectation? Well, firstly, what are the riches of Christ? The first thing to say is this. The riches of Christ are not primarily monetary in value. If you want to experience the riches that Jesus enjoyed in eternity, pre-incarnation, the riches that he experienced primarily was to do with his proximity to the Father and understanding who he was in God's presence. Those are the riches that Jesus experienced. And the New Testament, when it talks about the riches we experience, tells us that. So for example, it talks about the riches of God's kindness. It talks about the riches of God's glory, the riches of God's wisdom, the riches of God's grace. And then Colossians 2 finally says, that actually in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we need to understand, first and foremost, the highest blessing that God can give you has nothing to do with money, but everything to do with himself. Jesus is the one in whom I hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is not the root to something else that you'd need more. Jesus is the great prize. He is the great prize. So guess what? If you're a Christian, you've won the jackpot. You know Jesus and you are one day gonna fully know him just as you're fully known. You're gonna see him and meet him face to face. That's what the riches of Christ really look like. It's him. It's knowing him. Having said that, you cannot escape the fact that when the Bible describes what heaven is like, which is where Jesus came from when he came into the poverty of the earth, the Bible describes heaven as a place of incredibly opulent richness. So Revelation, for example, says that the gates of heaven are made with pure pearls. It says that there's, the, the, the road in heaven is made of pure gold. It looks like a transparent sea. Jesus is not sitting on a self-assembly chair from Ikea. He is sitting on a throne and around it is a rainbow full of emeralds. The walls in heaven are described as jasper and carnelian. In other words, heaven is described as paradise, not poverty. <laughs> heaven is not described as a slum. 
It's described as a place of incredible richness and incredible wealth. And that's what Jesus came from. So the question is, how much of the future should we expect now? Should we all be millionaires? And the answer to that question is no. But sometimes yes. You're welcome. No, but sometimes yes. And so... I think one of the most destructive, I would say, heresies of the 20th century in Christendom has been what's come to be known as prosperity teaching. Prosperity teaching originated in America in the 20th century, particularly around the advent of televangelists and uh, massive kind of uh, megachurch preachers, many of whom began to preach a very extreme version of what became known as prosperity teaching. And it's this idea that my spirituality is evidenced by how much money I have. And that somehow if I drive a fancy car, it shows that I know God more than someone who doesn't. And and I remember living in America for a year and having a rude awakening when I first turned on Christian TV in America. And... uh, It was unlike anything I'd experienced up to that point. And I'm sure there are many good things in Christian TV, but I've got to be honest, most of what I experienced, to me, felt utterly odd. And so much of what I saw in those early experiences were preachers online who basically were asking people for money to fund their ministries. And it was a little bit like Christian comic relief. Because at the bottom, you'd have a ticker tape saying, give to my ministry and I, in return, I'll send you a prayer pack or I'll send you a da-da-da-da or an anointed handkerchief or some holy oil from a holy place. In exchange for your money, I'll give you this spiritual blessing. Um, it culminated, the, the worst it got as I was watching was a guy who had a prayer tree in his studio. And he was putting people's prayer requests at different places on his prayer tree. And he said, the bigger your donation, the higher on my prayer tree you will go and the more prayers I will pray for you and the greater God's blessing will be. Now, that is an extreme version of what's come to be known as prosperity teaching. The idea that my faith is evidenced by the material blessings that I experience. And I just want to be really clear That kind of teaching is absolutely repugnant. And it has nothing to do with the gospel. It has nothing to do with the gospel. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 8, you come across this amazing story about Simon the sorcerer who saw the blessing of God being poured out and he thought, I'd like to have a bit of that. And so he gets his checkbook out and he starts to try and pay the apostles in exchange for spiritual blessing. And and Peter says, listen, may your silver and gold perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You cannot buy spiritual goods and services with your money. And the size of your faith is not determined by the size of car you drive or the type of watch that you wear or the kind of salary that you have or by the outward signs of possessions and money. That is not true. That is not true. And the prosperity gospel isn't just neutral, it's deadly. For example, it creates a spiritual hierarchy of haves and have-nots. It creates a cycle of judgment amongst Christians who judge one another according to what you have or what you don't have. It removes the idea of suffering from the gospel. If your call to follow Jesus is going to involve cost, 
It's going to involve suffering. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. If you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. Which means that if you're following Jesus, there should be some area in your life where you're having to sacrifice for the sake of following him. That's part of the gospel. But if you believe I'm meant to be healthy, wealthy, prosperous, and I'm entitled to all this stuff all the time, if that's what you believe the Bible teaches, then you will not accommodate suffering or sorrow into your life. But suffering and sorrow is part of the Christian life. The prosperity gospel exploits the poor. The places in the world where the prosperity gospel is most rampant are the poorest parts of the world, namely Africa and South America. I was talking to my friend Afrikanos a few weeks ago. He's a pastor in a slum in Nairobi. He's an incredible church planter, but when I, when I FaceTime him, he's in his house, which literally is two sticks holding up some, some cloth. That, that's his condition that he's living in. I was like, how can I pray for you? And he's like, he said, firstly, please would you come out and visit us because we need people to teach us the Bible. And I was like, why? I said, what's going on? He said, he said, there are people on every street corner trying to sell a miracle for money. And he's like, our people need to know the word of God, what God thinks about that. And he said, it's, it's, it's destroying the church in this nation at the moment. This idea that your spirituality is measured by what you own. Prosperity gospel neutralizes mission to unreached people groups. If you believe that you are meant to be healthy, wealthy, prosperous, if you're entitled to universal health care, to drive a big car and ever be in danger, you will never go to an unreached people group where you might die for the gospel. You want to stay in your comfort zone with your nice job and your pension. You won't want to go somewhere dangerous because it could be hard. And so the prosperity gospel has done great damage in the church and caused great confusion at times. But, I want you to hear this now, when we react to a doctrinal error, we usually create other doctrinal errors. When you live in reaction, your reaction usually produces an opposite, sometimes equally erroneous error. And if we want to stay out of the prosperity gospel ditch, we also want to stay out of the poverty mentality ditch as well. The poverty mentality says, the more poor I am, the more spiritual I am. It's like the opposite. And you can see how we live in reaction to one thing that feels repugnant and evil, and you end up in just as worse place. Because let me tell you this, God is not anti-money. He is not anti-money. This is what he said to Moses, Deuteronomy 8. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Notice that wealth was a sign of a confirmation of covenant. In other words, wealth was a direct result of God's blessing. Notice as well, Isaac, Genesis 26. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold and the Lord blessed him and he became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very, very wealthy. You can read the same about Abraham. Abraham in Genesis directly attributes, attributes his riches to the blessing of God. I am rich because God made me rich. It's in the Bible. You can read it. You talk about Solomon. It says in Solomon's day, silver and gold were so common, they were like rocks in Israel. Like he was so wealthy, people came from all over the nations to see his wealth. 
And it was part of the blessing of God. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. So you cannot get away from the biblical conclusion that God's blessing does sometimes, maybe even often, include material riches. But not always. God's blessings come in many shapes and forms. If you live a life of obedient following of Jesus, you will experience the blessing of God. And sometimes that will come in the form of material wealth. Sometimes it won't. I know materially poor people who are incredibly blessed by God in many other ways. That's my censure alarm. Riches are not necessarily a sign that someone knows God more. But sometimes riches are a sign that someone knows God and is walking in obedience. The key issue is it's God's prerogative how he blesses you. (laughs) I remember being in a high-density slum in Zimbabwe and meeting some of the wealthiest people I've ever met on this planet, although they were probably the most materially poor people that I'd ever met. And yet they shared everything that they had with us as visitors to their town. So you can be materially poor, but incredibly blessed by God in many other ways. But sometimes the blessing of God does include wealth. He entrusts wealth to people. God is not anti-money. As Chris Vallison says, money is not a measure of spirituality unless it is. Just think about that. Money is not a measure of spirituality unless it is. So friends, we've got to stay out of two ditches. Stay out of the prosperity ditch, but also stay out of the poverty ditch. But stay in this this lane right here, which is this. The heart of the gospel is generosity. What has God blessed you with and how can you demonstrate the gospel with what you have? For some of you, it is financial wealth. And the question for you is, how can you use your financial wealth to benefit and advance the kingdom of God? How can you use what God has given you to advance the lives of others, to bless other people, to show other people what God is like? I tell you what, the kingdom of God needs money. Now, I remember listening to someone who runs a Christian radio uh, station in this country, and they were needing to raise 100 million pounds to keep that radio show on the road. Let me tell you, the gospel does need money. And that's not an evil thing. That is just part of the world that we live in. But the key thing is whether you have much, or whether you have little, or whether you're somewhere bobbling along on the in-between, reflect the heart of God in being generous with what you have. Because in so doing, we show people Jesus. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? Thank you, Lord. Just as we're standing here, are just three great questions to ask in response. For some of us, I would say we just need a fresh revelation of what Christ has done, but also who you are. To understand wealth starts as an inside job. And so if you're maybe stuck in poverty thinking or victim mentality, I would encourage you just to freshly look at the wonder of what Christ has done for you. And remember who you are. God's your father and he's promised to provide for you. And so ask for fresh revelation. Secondly, just to ask what does radical generosity look like for me in this season? What has God given me? Maybe you can make a lemon meringue pie for someone. (laughs) Maybe you can open your home and share your food with someone. 
Maybe you can share your love with someone, your talents, your money. It could be all sorts of things. What does it look like? And then thirdly, if God has blessed you with material wealth, how can you invest that in kingdom advance this year? Those are three great questions. And so Jesus, as we reflect on these things, we just invite you into the, our stories again in this area. We want our attitudes to money to be shaped by scripture, to be shaped by what you say. And Lord, most of all, we just wanna be generous people like Jesus. Lord, I pray people will be able to say of us that, uh, that they, when they touched our lives, they touched superabundant generosity and kindness. Lord, may we love people like you love us. Oh God, we pray for that in Jesus' name. Let this just be a season where our hearts are changed. Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would make us super observant to people that need generosity in this season. Lord, just make us people who have their kindness switched on every moment of every day. I just pray tomorrow, Monday morning, I pray that our kindness machines would be switched right up to 10. Lord, that we'd be aware of people that just need a kind word, a generous thought. Holy Spirit, Lord, come, Lord, change us, we pray. Thank you, Lord.